we are back for another episode. And this is the first time I am doing this on the podcast. So it is an Ask Me Anything or AMA. I love doing these. This is something I actually will do in different communities and being able to serve parents. I do always give the disclaimer that this is educational in nature, but I know as an autism parent, you have so many different questions. And there often is not a place to be able to ask those questions. So what I did is I went to all of my social media and I said, this is an AMA, what do you wanna know? And I have questions that we are going to answer live on this podcast today. And I'll let you know who asked them, where they asked them from. So if you wanna connect with me in those places, you absolutely can do that. I am always here as a resource. I love connecting with you and I am here to provide education. This is my mission. This is what I love. This is what I stand behind. And yes, I love working with families through my private practice in a one-on-one capacity. I also love working with families in my group coaching program, but here's the thing. I also know that you just need reputable information as an autism parent. So that is what I have dedicated this podcast to, and that is also what I have dedicated my social media platforms to. I'm Dr. Tay, a licensed child psychologist and parental mindset coach specializing in autism. I have supported hundreds of autistic children and their family and have been in the autism field for over a decade. I'm the host of Evolve, the podcast where we have real conversations that are designed for autism parents just like you. Each week, we will discuss topics that directly impact your life, from providing psychoeducation about autism and neurodiversity to talking about your personal growth, well-being, and evolution as an autism parent, we dive into it all. Just keep in mind, nothing shared on this podcast is clinical advice and you should consult with a medical or mental health provider if you need support. Now let's get to answering the questions. So the first question actually comes from Megan R on TikTok. And she said, I need the levels explained. They keep being used, but I don't know what they mean. Like my son has a level, but no clue the meaning. Okay, so what Megan is asking about is when you get a diagnosis of autism, some providers will also provide a level. We're talking level one, two, and three. Now, if you're listening to this right now and you're like, my child doesn't have a level, should they have a level? I promise it is okay. As a provider myself, I actually don't often do the levels unless there's some sort of insurance-based reason that the insurance company is requiring it or in order for your child to qualify for services, then I will do it. The reason that I don't do it is because it isn't very logical. So where these levels come from is called the DSM-5, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, fifth edition. This is what, as a clinician, I am using to evaluate if your child has autism or not. And so I have symptoms that I'm looking for. Episode four dove into that all. But then also there are different, what we call specifiers, things we can kind of add on. And what levels are is they are describing what your child's needs are, what their support needs are, but they're often confused with severity. So we have level one, level two, and level three. Level one is requiring support, meaning that your autistic child needs some support in their life in order to be able to reach their most optimal level. Level two is requiring substantial support. So as we go up, the the quote unquote severity increases, but 
I'm going to explain in a second why it's not severity. So requiring substantial support. Then level three is requiring very substantial support. So basically, as your child needs more support, they go up in that level. There's a couple of reasons that I don't love levels. Number one is it makes parents think of severity level. How severe is my child? Are they a level one, a level two, a level three? But what that rating, if we think of it as severity, is not taking into account is also your child's baseline needs regardless of autism or not. For example, if I am seeing a toddler in my practice, which almost always I see toddlers, this is my area of specialty, I'll see kids as young as 12 to 14 months of age. Here's the thing. I want you to think of any, we'll go with an 18-month-old, any 18-month-old, do they require support? Hell yeah, they require support. And they require either substantial or very substantial support because their developmental level, that's what is needed. And so that's where it starts to get confusing is sometimes then when we're thinking about level, we're not actually thinking about the child's developmental functioning in that. So that's one reason that I don't love it. Another reason, and this is really, you know, spoken in the autistic community is that one level or sometimes they'll do it for each of the two domains of autism, which is social communication and interaction and restricted repetitive behaviors. Sometimes they'll give separate ratings for each. But how does one level describe all of your child's symptoms and presentations? It doesn't. We know that autism is made up of strengths and challenges, right? And this is the thing is they might have mild difficulty with change in routine, but they might have really strong and intense difficulty with sensory elements. So what are we going to rate that as in terms of levels? How much support do they need? Maybe routines, they just need a little bit of prompting and they're able to move on. But maybe with sensory, you're having to really accommodate what their needs are. You're having to cut tags out of everything. You're having to order seamless socks. You're having to go to a specific store to get a specific type of jogger pants for them. That is more accommodation and more support that is needed. And so that is one of the things that the autistic community argues is not only do different areas vary, and how much support an individual needs or what their quote unquote severity is. But the other thing is those ebb and flow. Not only do they ebb and flow throughout development. So I might see a kid that I diagnose as a level two or three when I'm first seeing them, but later on when they're elementary age, they might be a level one. And we do sometimes see it go the opposite where maybe it's diagnosed as a level one and it increases to a level three. And it's hard as a parent to wrap your brain around that too. What does that mean? And this is where I just don't find them that useful. The other piece is things can ebb and flow on different days. Our moods change, our environments change, how much support we need in a given day can absolutely vary. So Megan, I hope that answered your question on what the levels mean, but I also am going to encourage you and other parents listening to this, that if your child received a level as part of their diagnosis, trying not to get too stuck on what does that mean? And here's the biggest question I get, I will answer parents when they're like, okay, but how how severe is my child? I explain the levels. I explain how this is a snapshot in time. It's 
based on right now, this is where I would rate it based on their current developmental level, their current age, all these different things. Here's how I would rate it. But we can't predict the future. And so this is one of the things too that I sometimes see parents struggle with and understandably so is, okay, maybe I have this level three of autism right now in terms of my child's diagnosis, what does that mean for their future? Does that mean they're going to be in a general education classroom? Are they going to be able to speak? All those worries come up and those worries are going to be there regardless of giving a level or not. But I think sometimes the levels can confuse that. So I hope that helps. All right, the next question from Kim M. She submitted her question on Instagram. How do you find the right therapist? Like speech, OT, sensory, family therapy, all of that. I love this question because as a parent of an autistic child, you're likely either having recommendations for your child to start all these intervention services, or maybe your child is participating in these intervention services. And one of the things that I want to encourage you is that the therapist that you have now doesn't necessarily have to be the therapist you stick with. Or the first therapist that you find and get connected with isn't the one that has to be with you long term. And I am not over here recommending therapist hopping. There, there's some detriments to hopping from one therapist to another because it takes time for any therapist to build rapport with your your child and also to gain some momentum in whatever treatment modality they're doing. But if you are not connecting with your provider, I do recommend actually switching, especially if you don't feel heard or you feel like they're not a good match to your child. So I hear this a lot where it's like, yeah, like the speech therapist just expects my child to sit at the table. My child never sits at a table. Well, if your child never sits at a table and that's something you are working on, which something like OT can work on that, something like family therapy or working with someone like myself can work on that, all of that. Great target, right? But we shouldn't be targeting something that is a different skill in a therapy that isn't designed to target that sitting at a table, for example. I'm not saying that over time we can't increase expectations that your child sits at the table during speech therapy, but let's meet them where they're at. And if you feel like there's really a disconnect between your child and their therapist, search for a new one. So to answer Kim's question, because I got a little bit on a kick there all about what I feel passionate about, and I want you to feel empowered as a parent, Where do you find therapists? First off, I always recommend going to your pediatrician and asking for referrals. Your pediatrician likely has developed a network of people that they trust, that they've heard good things about. That's one place. Number two, find other parents in your community that have an autistic child or maybe a child with developmental delays and ask them where they go. Additionally, you might even connect with autism communities. There might be a support group or some sort of like group that serves autism families or even connecting with autistic adults. Autistic adults, even if they're not participating in services, they are amazing at finding amazing providers that align with their mission of being able to empower people to better understand autism, to increase acceptance, to make sure we're really focused on promoting neurodiversity. So going to the autism community. The other thing that you can do 
you can call your insurance provider and ask for a list. If you do that, you're not necessarily going to know who's going to be like highly recommended. But don't be afraid to interview providers. Think of it like a first date, right? You go on a first date, you're not going on that first date being like, I'm going to marry this person. You're not like committing to them and to a relationship with them. It's a trial period. You're like, do I like them? Is there a connection? I want you to think of working with a therapist in this same exact way. You are not committing to them long-term. Get a sense, do you like them? Do you connect with them? Do you resonate with them? And so date them for a little bit before you determine if this is a good fit for your child. You can also ask a therapist about their approach. Say, and I I recommend this, but say neurodiversity is really important for you, that you really want to focus on having your whole family embrace autism, understanding that this is your child's identity and that this is part of your world now. And it doesn't have to be something that is impacting you negatively in every single aspect. Don't get me wrong, getting an autism diagnosis, you're gonna have a lot of mixed emotions and it is hard as a parent and as you're processing it. But also surrounding yourself with providers that are really gonna help you to begin to build your awareness of autism and really build this acceptance that your child may stem to regulate themselves. And so that is a piece of this. Find providers that align with your beliefs. And so when you call a therapist, ask them questions that are of importance to you. And then the last piece, this is more true if you're looking on the mental health side of things, you're looking for a family therapist, a psychologist, there are websites you can search on. So Psychology Today is an example of one of those. So that's different ways that you can find therapists for your child. But I want you to feel empowered in this process. I don't want you to feel stuck in this process. And I want you to find someone that you really feel like meshes with your family and is going to serve you. Thank you so much, Kim, for your question. The next one is from Lauren P. Lauren P. submitted this in my Evolve Facebook community. And oh, this question, immediately I read it. I was like, we are answering this on the podcast. What are two or three things that parents can do to support their own needs when childcare is limited? It's hard to put your own mask on first when you don't have a support team built yet. So good. And y'all know this podcast is just as much about you as a parent as it is about your autistic child. And this is so important that I think sometimes this idea of self-care, of taking care of your own needs, it is oversimplified. You can scroll Instagram and people telling you, you got to show up for yourself. And one thing to keep in mind with this is in order to change our behaviors, we also have to change our thought patterns around those behaviors. And so one of my tips, and it is not a simple tip, it's not going to like solve everything for you. But first is changing some of your narrative around it. If you're constantly saying, I don't have a support team, I don't have time for me, my children are pulling me in all different directions, my job is, my my partner is, all of that, there's no space for me. There is a part of that that feels very real and true for you. And so I don't want to invalidate that. And your words are really powerful. So if you think that what happens on a neural level is your brain wants to be right. 
your brain wants to prove to itself that what it thinks is accurate. And so if you think those thoughts, it's going to look for evidence in your environment that supports that thought and say, oh, bing, yep, I'm right. Oh, bing, someone had a blowout. I was supposed to go read for five minutes. I better go change their diaper. Oh, see, there's no time for me. Oh, my, my child's having a meltdown right now. See, no time for me. And those things, again, are very real things in your environment. No question about it. But if you're constantly thinking about how there isn't time or that you don't have that community yet, that sometimes our brain just naturally filters and we end up focusing on the evidence that supports that thought. And we very likely could be missing the evidence that goes against that thought. And so one of the things, start looking for the evidence against that thought. Start being like, okay, I don't have a support team yet. Well, who could I call? Who could I call? Even if it's not they can come over, but it's five minutes of just spending time on the phone with them connecting. So that is a question you can ask yourself. You can also then say to yourself, I'm going to shift how I'm thinking about this rather than, and I did a whole episode on the power of positive thinking and why it doesn't work. So I'm not going to tell you to think positively here. And the positive thought would be, oh, well, there's so much time for me. Probably not accurate, right? But instead saying, I am going to find time for me even if it's five minutes, right? And so what's gonna happen is your brain is gonna want to start proving that, right? So I start with that as a tip, that on this neural level, our thoughts are really powerful and the stories that we tell ourselves absolutely matter. And so that is one of the things. Number two, I would say, is actually creating these routines with your children. Maybe starting to implement quiet time of, hey, we're gonna all sit here and breathe for five minutes. And I'm gonna tell you, when you first start doing this, you're gonna wanna give up. You're gonna say, Taylor, this does not work. This is the worst advice ever. But the more that you start modeling what you want in your household, the more your children are gonna start repeating that, imitating that. We know that's how children learn. And what they need to see from you is consistency. Now, what happens sometimes is as you're modeling, that initial chaos, it's actually called the extinction burst. And what this means is basically children just naturally start to test limits. And so it's like, you might be saying, we're going to breathe for five minutes and your child's screaming. Well, they know screaming is going to get your attention, right? And so sometimes we see these negative or challenging behaviors escalate before the bubble actually bursts. And that bubble burst is when then we start to see that it comes around, that you start to gain that momentum. So you have to kind of hold out. But I would say things like implementing quiet time for all of the household. And if you have really, really little kids, this might be when your child is down for a nap. But then usually once we're about toddler preschool age, we can start developing quiet time where it's like, okay, I want you to read for five minutes. And you might initially have to body double with your child. What that means is doing it alongside them where you're reading, they're reading. But over time, you'll be able to start to distance yourself where they will have learned the skill and you can continue to implement that. Or the other pieces, like I said, meditation, breathing, getting that in. So even if quiet time doesn't work in your household, can you start like a practice? And no, this might not be the most ideal version, but we're not going for perfection here. We're not going for the most elaborate thing. We're just finding those small moments to recharge you. The last piece of this and this is going to be hard for parents to hear, but I need you to ask for help. I need you to communicate 
to those people that are in your life, that are part of your support team because they exist, I need you to communicate with them. I need you to actually say, hey, honey, I really need five minutes by myself right now. Or it could look like you're driving home from work. How often does mom guilt kick in where you want to rush in the door and go see your children? Can you sit in the car for five minutes and maybe not in your driveway? Maybe you need to sit in the car for five minutes at work. Or can you find these little moments of time where you can add on that time for you? But I need you to ask for help in order for these to be possible. Hey, I'm going to be five minutes later today. I need to take this time for myself. I need to make myself a priority in order to show up and be a better mom. Or maybe feel uncomfortable if there are grandparents or a friend and those people have been offering, how can I help? And you're like, I'm good, I'm good, right? Because you wanna be superwoman or a superhero or superman, whatever you identify with, you want to be that person. And so when other people extend themselves, we more likely than not are declining their offers. I want you to lean into that. I want you to actually take someone up on that, right? And sometimes, yes, there are logistical things. And none of this answer is trying to oversimplify it. I want to make that loud and clear that this is complicated. It's going to take time. There is no magic solution that is going to fix this, but it's making it a priority. Where does this fall in your values? Are you putting yourself high enough in your values list to actually start to make this happen, to create it. Thinking of it like a habit, it's going to take time to develop and you are going to hit barriers along the way. There's going to be more resistance. It's going to be more challenging for you as an autism parent, but also believing that it is possible is the key. So circling back to that first point. All right. I hope that is helpful, Lauren. I absolutely love your question. And I just want to point out the fact that you're asking that question means that the desire is there. And so now it's time to start acting in alignment with that desire to make it happen. Christina R. also asked in my Facebook community, when is it appropriate to share your child's autism diagnosis with extended family and friends, particularly on your social media account? I want to spread awareness and acceptance of autism, but I also feel like I can't get consent from my child yet to share his private medical information. Is there a balance? Christina, I love this question because I love this idea of respecting your child's wishes and desires, but you're articulating your child isn't old enough yet to give that. And I think that's really, really important. The piece though that I do want to offer you is one of the things as a culture we're trying to move towards is more acceptance, more acceptance of neurodiversity, that brains think differently, more acceptance of differences and all of that. And so one of the things that I think about is We want that, but that is going to take change on a micro level that we have to be willing as humans to change our own behaviors. We have to be willing to actually talk about autism, even though we've grown up in a culture that it's considered, it's very stigmatized. It can be considered taboo to share a diagnosis, but some of it is if we want to build this world where people are more accepting then we need to be willing to get a little bit uncomfortable to actually share this information. And you still might be going, right, but my child's consent isn't in that. Keeping in mind that children adopt their thought patterns, they adopt 
the way that they show up, they adopt their belief systems, all of that from their parents. And yes, as children age, they start to deviate from that. And that that's a later level of developmental maturity, but generally speaking. And so if your child grows up in an environment where you are open about autism, that you do have the tough conversations, that they're seeing you talk about it and normalize it, that is going to make it that much easier for your child then to start to accept the diagnosis themselves or to accept this identity. And so sometimes I think there is this hesitancy to talk about it. And I, again, I really value this idea of consent, but also keep in mind, there's many things in your child's life that they're not providing consent for. And you have the consent as a parent. There does become an age at which we think of what's called assent. So consent, because they're under 18, you as the parent have the authority of that. We do want to bring in assent once they have the capabilities to be able to express themselves. So an example of this is as they age, it might be having open conversations of, listen, how do you feel when we see someone at the park and you're struggling to do X, Y, and Z? How do you feel that the way that I describe this to them? What language would you want me to use? And having that conversation. So this is ever evolving. Yes, you have at that point shared with your child's family or close people to your family about your child's diagnosis and that isn't going to be undone. But what you can do is your child later on can decide how they want to talk about autism. But I think there is this importance of normalizing talking about the diagnosis. It's part of learning acceptance and modeling acceptance. They're gonna learn how you talk about it is how they're going to talk about it. So think about it in this way, rather than thinking about consent, I'd like you to think about it of what would you want to model for them? How would you like them to navigate their, their autism journey and speaking about it and knowing that children learn through parents being the model first. So you have to show up and do that. And so I think that is the overall gist of it. Now, in terms of social media in particular, first off, I would make sure you're having one-on-one -on -one conversations with anyone that's personal to your life, like your family members or close friends about autism before you're putting it on social media. Social media is tricky. I love sharing my life on social media. It actually helps me feel more connected. I love being able to serve people and all of that. We each have our own boundaries. This is what I want you to think about is what is your boundary? Are you comfortable? And some of that comfortability might come first to sharing it in your personal life. For example, if your child's at the playground and another child approaches them and the other child looks at you and goes, well, why isn't he talking? It's like, okay, what are you gonna say in that moment? How are you gonna explain why your child isn't speaking yet in the way that we traditionally think about in terms of the neurotypical world, which right now is our standard. We're working to shift that as a whole, as a movement. But you might be like, Johnny's autistic. That means his brain thinks differently and he communicates in other ways. Do you see how he keeps signing for more? That means he wants to play with you. Go play with Johnny and like encouraging that. So that might be an example or, and you have to decide, are you comfortable telling another child that your child is autistic and what this means? Or I've heard parents say like, 
Well, Johnny just hasn't found his word yet. Sometimes brains think differently. So you might not even bring in the word autism. Although I will challenge you even on that front, what is it about the word autism that creates discomfort for you? Is it just you don't think it's appropriate in that situation? Absolutely fine. And we all navigate things differently. Or is there some part of you that it's still hard to speak out loud? And this might seem silly, but you might start in your own household with your immediate family members and making sure you're intentionally using the word autism. This is exposure therapy, starting at that easiest level, at that safest place and working your way up from there. And being able to speak about it in your everyday life then is going to translate to being able to speak about it on social media. So I hope that helps and I hope that provides some clarity for you, Christina, that ultimately, what you model is what your child is going to learn and what do you want your child to feel about their autism and one of the things that we know from autistic adults is open collaborative conversations about autism being forthcoming here's an example your brain sometimes gets stuck it has what we call rigid thinking that that's part of your autism and what also is part of your autism is how you can take apart an entire clock and put it back together that's part of your autism too. And there are some things that we need more support in. And there are some things that you are absolutely just going to rock in your how your brain thinks. It's so amazing to watch. And I love that. Right there, you're talking to your child about their challenges as well as their strengths. You're not saying your challenges are your autism, but your strengths, those balance it out. No, they're all part of autism. They're all part of your child's identity. They're all who makes your child up. And so what conversations are you having about autism? And autistic adults say the more that we can actually communicate in helping your child to build up their confidence, the better. So I hope kind of this shift in language, I respect the consent boundary, and in particular, as your child grows, that idea of assent comes into play. You are ultimately the one making the decision. And we want that collaborative energy and effort. And I hope it's seeing that in order to start making not only a change in the world, but also your child's world, that we need to be talking about autism openly is what my recommendation would be. Now, you might get a different provider who doesn't agree with me on this. I'm really pro neurodiversity and pro listening to the autistic community and all of that. And so, I think that's what they would say. I'm not autistic myself to be able to speak from firsthand experience, but I also think about my own family and what some of our conversations about autism were like and how that might be different had autism been part of my family now versus two decades ago. So thank you, Christina. All right. Also from my Facebook community, Sherelle A. asked tips on helping a young autistic child understand that their younger siblings need help and attention as well. Yes, I love this, Sherelle. Great question. So I think first off, have the conversation. There's developmentally appropriate ways that we can do this. And some of this is by language like, oh, Bobby needs help right now. I need you to wait. And waiting is really hard. Waiting is hard for any child. Let's be real. But then some of it is 
What are your actions actually teaching them? Are you saying you need to wait, but then you're having to stop what you're doing with Bobby and run to your autistic child to support them? That's reinforcing. They're they're realizing, wait, I don't actually need to wait. So that's one thing I want you to think about is what is the language you're communicating? And then how are you reinforcing that? How are you actually showing up? Another thing that I absolutely love, and we did an entire episode on this as well, using visual supports. So your child just might not fully understand what is needed. And so you might have like picture cues of first I help Bobby, then I play with you. Or first I I change Bobby's diaper and then we're going to do your bath time. And those visual cues are nice because one, autistic children tend to be visual learners. So it helps them to process it in a different way. Plus they have that visual to reference back to. They don't have to remember what you said because they can look at what you said. Then the last piece I'm going to really, really encourage is actually involving your autistic child in your younger children's routines. For example, if you're changing your younger child's diaper, how can your autistic child help in that situation? It is going to take longer to involve your other children, but can you give your autistic child in particular, but this is true of any children, can you give them the diaper to hold? Hey, I need you to hold this for me. That is giving them an active role. Here's the thing though, is not only is it giving them an active role and it's making them part of that and it's showing they're actually learning what their siblings needs are. The other thing is it's a great opportunity for connection and practicing communication. We know from research chores are actually really, really important in child development. And when I say chores, I mean from like early toddlerhood, like your child can be doing things like even holding their own diaper, for example, or teaching them how to turn on the bath water or feeding the dog. Yes, they might make a mess, but that's okay. They're learning, you're engaging with them, they're exploring, there's so many elements that come into this. And so I want you to think about it almost from a chore perspective of how do you add them into these interactions and give them an active role. All right. The last question that I got was actually, it came up in a few different ways. And one of these ways was a personal conversation that I had recently. And so I'm not going to actually identify that person, but the general question is, what is something you wish every parent with a newly diagnosed child knew? Or what can I expect walking into my child's evaluation. And I loved this question. It came up in my Facebook community. But like I said, I've also had a couple conversations around this recently. And this is a conversation in the diagnostic process that literally, this is what I say to families verbatim, is I want you to remember that the child that walked into this appointment is the same exact child that is walking out of this appointment. And what I mean by this appointment is that diagnostic appointment, the one where you're hearing your child has autism. Nothing has changed about your daughter, for example. Nothing has changed about Susie. Susie, when she walked into that autism evaluation, was Susie, right? And when Susie walks out of that autism evaluation, she still is Susie. The only difference is now you understand a little bit more about how Susie's brain thinks. You understand how now to support Susie in this process. Autism sometimes can seem scary. 
It can seem like what is going to happen to my child as a result of this diagnosis? Are they going to be held back? All of that. And here is the reality is more often than not, an autism diagnosis is simply, it's there to provide you clarity as the parent of how to support your child, of how to understand how their brain works, of how to help them navigate through different situations. And it just is giving you a common language with other people to understand, yeah, their brain thinks differently. That doesn't mean that we necessarily need to be fixing anything or we're not trying to cure, we're not trying to get rid of the autism. Always keep that in mind. Autism is part of who your child is. And that's why when your child walks into the appointment, they already were autistic. You just have more clarity. Now, hearing that piece of news can be so incredibly challenging. And so that's the other piece that I would add to this. Not only do I want to remind you it is your same child and nothing has changed about your child, you just now have more clarity, you have a roadmap. But the other piece of this I want you to remember and that I want you to hear if you're going through this diagnosis process right now or you're looking for a provider, you are going to have emotions and these emotions are going to change regularly. You might be like, okay, I'm ready for the diagnosis and then find yourself crying. That's okay. You are human. You are allowed to process through this. I often say that what we see is that getting a diagnosis can imitate the stages of grief. And it's not like you've lost someone or anything like that. I'm not saying it's analogous to that, quite the opposite actually. But grief has a lot of complexity and a lot of emotions. And the grief that you're having is learning to shift your expectations for your child. When your child was born, you probably at some point in that early postnatal period were thinking about how one day they're gonna get married, they're gonna have a successful career, they're gonna have a family of their own and all of that. And listen, that is still possible for many of your children. But sometimes when we hear that diagnosis, it begins to shift what we think about. Rather than thinking about, are they going to get married? The question might be, are they going to speak? What's ironic is before diagnosis, that still was an unknown. When your child was born, you didn't know whether or not they were going to speak, but your brain wasn't primed to think in that way. And so parents can go through almost these stages of grief of letting go of their own expectations and knowing that the journey is going to look different, but different isn't necessarily bad. So that's all for pre-submitted questions. Let's take one question that was asked live. Savannah P. from Facebook says, how can I help my daughter's teacher differentiate her spectrum behaviors versus her being a kid and those behaviors? And also myself, sometimes it's obvious and other times I'm not sure where the behavior comes from. So here is one of the things to think about is what would be the purpose, Savannah, of differentiating what is from being on the spectrum or being autistic and what is typical child behaviors. Because at the end of the day, this is just who your daughter is. And part of this, yes, part of this is normative expectations of different challenges and all of that. I see you added a follow-up piece about hormones changing, all of that, yes, we expect that. But some of it is how your daughter reacts to that That's her own unique experience, and that is how it is portrayed. And so I almost would take a step back and say, 
what would be the benefit of actually labeling something as this is an autistic behavior and this is not an autistic behavior? Are you going to navigate this any differently? And one might answer, yes, if I know that it's like their neurotypical peers are doing it, I might just let it be versus if it's an autistic thing, I might want to intervene on some way. But some of it is kind of flipping our mindset of, asking yourself, does your child need support in this moment? It doesn't really matter if it's because this is a stage of development or whatnot, or if it is the actual autism itself. Does your child need support in this moment? And I think that is what is going to ultimately serve you, serve your daughter's teachers, and serve your daughter the best versus trying to parse them apart. Because I said this earlier, we wanna think about autism. Autism is strengths and weaknesses. Just as us as neurotypical humans, we have strengths and weaknesses. We don't parse apart our strengths and be like, ooh, this is one part of us and our weaknesses are another part of us. No, we say this is all part of us. And that goes as well for your daughter's strengths and weaknesses. And so again, I say this, Can we flip it on its head? Does your daughter need support? And how do you support your daughter? I think that might be something that ultimately serves you the best. Now, can it be helpful to sometimes understand why your daughter's brain is thinking in this way? And you might be like, okay, yes, that maps on to a symptom of autism. There are times and places, but often in the moment, you don't have time to think through all of that. And plus that isn't going to provide you any additional clarity. There's a book, it's called Uniquely Human by Dr. Barry Prezant. He talks about in the beginning of the book that any quote unquote autistic behavior, we also see in neurotypical children. And we've just come to label them naturally as being autistic behaviors. But guess what? Flapping or stimming, for example, Neurotypical children will flap, will stim. Maybe it's not to the degree or the intensity or the frequency that we see in some autistic children, but it still exists. And so I would recommend Savannah, get that book, read that book, rent it from the library, or you can get it on Audible, because I think it will start to change your perspective of, okay, this is all who your daughter is and where do we need to support her? I think that might be the approach that is going to serve you best. I hope that helps. All right, y'all. I think that is all. Those are all the questions that I'm seeing come in, but we will have to do another episode like this. Thank you so much for being here and participating, submitting your questions. I am always here to serve, answer questions, that type of thing. And we'll have to do another ask me anything in the future. I love doing this. I do this a lot in different communities, but it was time that I actually did it on my own podcast. So if you think this should come back, do me a favor, take a screenshot of this podcast, and I want you to share it on your social media. Let me know. And that is how I know I should bring it back for another episode, share it with another parent. I look at my insights of each episode to see what episodes are trending and what episodes are getting the most listens, because that tells me if that is true, then those are the topics you're interested in. And I want to keep serving you. So
So you can also go ahead and follow me. I put all my contact information in the show notes. I'm on Instagram. I'm on TikTok. I have a Facebook community, LinkedIn, all of it. Go follow me. Go connect with me there. Come join the Evolve Facebook community. One of the advantages of that is every week I live record the episode and there's a Q&A after that. I also ask my Evolve community from time to time, what questions do you have? And you can also post questions in the Facebook feed and get answers directly from me and other parents. It's a community designed for you to feel seen, heard, and supported. And then the last thing is if you feel like you're needing more support, this is exactly what I designed group coaching for. What's really unique about my group coaching program is it was designed with you as an autism parent in mind. I took all of my clinical expertise over the last 10 years about autism, and I am creating a video-based curriculum for you to go through, but it's also going to focus on you as the parent, on how to show up and serve yourself. And every single week, you will have a live call with me where you can submit questions. You will also get access to me in a community just for group coaching that in between sessions, you can ask questions, you can celebrate wins, you can vent whatever is needed. So if that is of interest to you, reach out to me, DM me, and let's chat about group coaching and if this could be a way that you could be served more intentionally, more purposefully, and really feel like you have a space that is safe to ask anything and everything. All right, y'all, that is a wrap for this week's episode of Evolve with Dr. Tay. If you find yourself listening to these episodes and finding value, come join the Evolve Facebook group. Each week, I record podcast episodes live in that community and host a Q&A after each episode. You get access to engage with me, plus you can connect with other like-minded autism parents. It is a community designed for you to feel seen, heard, and supported as a parent of an autistic child and introduces you to my whole family approach. The group is linked in the show notes. I will be back next week with another real conversation about all things autism and your family life. Be sure to hit the plus or follow button in the podcast platform that you are listening to right now. This will notify you when the next episode is live. Catch you all later.